Father, we thank you, Lord, that we can gather together here this morning to learn more about your word. We thank you for who you are and for what you've done for us through your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we um, ask that you would help open the word to us this morning, that we would uh, rightly divide it. We ask, Lord, for the saints around our nation, around the world, that they would find good fellowship, that they would be encouraged by the gospel, and they'd be exhorted to obedience. And Lord, we ask that that would be the effect of the word upon us this morning. And so I ask, Lord, you'd speak truthfully through me and also through Bob in, in the sermon coming up. And we ask that you would guide our steps in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're getting down to the last section here before Paul goes on to talk about final instructions. We're going to be talking about the slaves and masters within the household of the Christians. And this extends not only to the Christians at Colossae, but to all Christians everywhere for all time. And if you recall, last time we were together, we had talked about some instructions that Paul gave to the parents and to also children. And so he is in that theme of talking about how the household of God should be run. And of course, the household back in the times that the New Testament was written often incorporated slaves. And we're going to be talking a little bit more about that. I know Patrick had asked a good question, and we're going to be delving into that a little bit more this morning. So with that, let me just show you the first verse. You know that we're in the last section, so I don't have to give you an outline anymore. And we're going to see that slaves are to serve as unto the Lord. Colossians 3.22, Paul says this. He says, Slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Notice that term masters on earth. It literally can be rendered masters according to the flesh. And the reason why I think that's significant is because these are they're obviously people that aren't God, are they? They're masters only in the flesh, and therefore they only have so much authority, and their authority comes from God. So therefore the master shouldn't abuse their authority, however, because they answer to God, but the slaves also have to answer to them because that is what's fitting by the instructions of the Lord himself. And then notice the phrase here, the external service. That would indicate that Paul is saying you don't just serve when you're being watched. You don't just give the outward act as if you're doing your job, but you serve wholeheartedly with all your mind, with all your effort. Why? Because ultimately you're not answering to your boss. You're going to be answering to God. He is ultimately the master that you're going to be answering to. And that's why he says fearing the Lord. Notice the term, all things obey. And I'm sure, as Patrick alluded to, this may cause some of us some unction because here Paul is saying that slaves must obey and he's not saying that slavery is wrong. Okay, But I want to talk about this. The question I want to answer is why doesn't the Bible forbid slavery? And so again, what I want you to see is the distinction between slavery in America, which was based on the immoral idea that some people are inferior merely because of their skin color, and the slavery in the ancient Near East that often occurred because of financial problems. And so the slave would have to sell themselves to their masters in order to even survive. So let's look at slavery in the Old Testament. Why did God not forbid slavery? Well, first of all, there's two ways people became slaves. The first one is this. People became slaves as a result of war. And you can see the following passages. In fact, I gave Deuteronomy 20.10. Was that uh, James? Yeah. Deuteronomy 20.10. And 
the reason I want you to read this, James, and everybody, is because you're going to see this is a model not only for Israel, but this reflects somewhat what was going on in the culture of the day as well. Deuteronomy 20.10. Yeah. When you approach a city to wage war against it, offer it terms of peace. Keep going down to uh, verse, yeah, verse 14. If it accepts your terms and submits to you, all of the people found in it will become your slaves. If it does not accept the terms of peace but makes war with you, then you are to lay siege to it. The Lord your God will deliver it over to you, and you must kill every single male by the sword. However, the women, little children, cattle, and anything else in the city, all its plunder, you may take for yourselves a spoil. You may take from your enemies the plunder that the Lord your God has given you. Yeah. So think about this little line of logic. I should have written this out to make sure it's sound, being that I taught logic. But think about if all slavery is evil and God is endorsing slavery, then God would then be endorsing evil. Okay? Now, I'm not checking that for formal. But yeah, Bill. <laughs> According to the scriptures there that, that uh, was just read, the ultimatum was either they submit to slavery or That's right. they die. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Well, in the, uh, the current political arena, you'll see a flag with a coiled snake that says, live free or die. <laughs> Rhode Island? I think so. Yeah, yeah. Or it's New Hampshire, that's right. That, you know, there was a comedian who once said, between live free and die and famous potatoes of Idaho, the truth somewhere lies about America. <laughs> famous potatoes and live free or die. <laughs> it's a big spread, isn't it? Yeah, Keith. Well, I, I think the that is kind of missing the point on on the whole issue of slavery, especially yeah. in the context of the Old Testament. Yeah. What Israel was offering to those cities that they were conquering was a chance to come under the rule of God because yeah. it was the kingdom of God coming upon this enemy city yeah. as encapsulated in, in Israel. So they, it wasn't just live free or die, it was live pagan That's and right. die. It was a great advantage yeah, in every way. Yeah, live pagan or die or come and submit to God as slaves and that's live, right. which is actually what he's offering us as Gentiles now. Exactly, and that's, that's kind of one of my points is that what was important to God ultimately is one's eternal salvation. Whether one comes under the covenant relationship with Yahweh, that's far more important than whether they're a slave here and now. And we're going to see that extend not only in the Old Testament but in the New Testament as well. In fact, you'll see a passage in 1 Corinthians 7 that alludes to that very fact. So, great point. Yeah, but let me keep moving on just for the sake of time here. The second way people would become slaves is they had to sell themselves because their inability to pay debt. Okay? So, those are the two primary ways. Now, let me read Leviticus 25, 39, 42, and 44 to you. Listen to what the Lord says. He says, If a countryman of yours, of course, he's speaking to the Israelites, if... A countryman of yours becomes so poor with regard to you that he sells himself to you. You shall not subject him to a slave's service. Now, remember, this is only to Hebrews. Now, let me stop there. This indicates that that was common in the ancient Near East, that in the background that this is written, it was common that if you became poor, that you would often sell yourself into slavery. Well, what God is saying is because all of the Hebrews are, in fact, slaves to him alone, they shall not be a slave to their fellow Hebrew. And so he goes on, he says, He shall be with you as a hired man, as if he were a sojourner. He shall serve you until the year of Jubilee. Remember, the year of Jubilee happens on the 50th year. It is the 
after the end of the seventh sabbatical year. Remember, there's, every seven years you have a Sabbath year and you have to let the land rest. Well, when you have seven of those, then all of a sudden the next year is the year of Jubilee. Here's the thing. Sometimes you'll read in the scriptures where these slaves are to be set free on the Sabbath year, and sometimes it's on the sabbatical year. I'm sorry, the year of Sabbath, and sometimes it's the year of Jubilee. Here's the point. How do you know which one? Is there a contradiction in the scriptures? No, it's which one comes first. So let's say the next year was the year of Jubilee. That would be the year you'd be set free. If the next year was the Sabbath year, you'd be set free then. That's how it would work. So anyway, let me continue. It says, for they are my servants. So God is, again, saying that these people belong to me in a unique way. He says, you may acquire male and female slaves from the pagan nations that are around you. And again, this ties in with what you're saying, Keith, that it's a great benefit if people are brought into the covenant people of God because therefore they can hear the word, become converted, and have eternal life. So therefore, it's far more glorious to be a slave under Yahweh than it is to be a free man in the pagan nation. So that's exactly... And so, friends, do you see how the fairness issue is seen differently by God? Because he has a different perspective. In our culture, that pri- the average man doesn't really believe the wrath of God is upon them. But God knows that it's upon them, and so he knows what's actually important. The important thing isn't whether you're slave or free. The most important thing is that the wrath of God is no longer abiding upon you because you have faith in the Messiah. That's the most important thing. But now let me still address this issue because I want to show you that the banning of slavery, here's the issue why, another reason why I don't think God would want to ban it is banning slavery would have left thousands destitute and unable to survive Friends, God doesn't just make us feel good, or he himself, I should say, doesn't do things that makes him feel good, but rather he does good, okay? In other words, it would feel very good to ban all slavery in the ancient Near East. That makes us feel good. We have, but yet thousands would have been destitute and no way to provide for themselves. Would that have been a loving thing? Let me just show you some of the benefits. So God distinguishes between slavery of necessity and immoral slavery, So when I say that God does not ban slavery, he does still, and don't think that he does not take a dim view of some forms of slavery. For instance, when people are taken captive, they're free men or free women, and there's no need for them to be slaves because they have the financial wherewithal to to provide for themselves, it would be a very bad thing indeed to take them against their will to be slaves. And we see evidence of this in 1 Timothy 9 through 10. Listen to what Paul says here. He says, Realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals, and kidnappers and liars and perjurers. The term kidnappers there is andropodistase. It literally means a slave dealer, okay? So a better translation, I think, would be... Because a kidnapper, you get the idea that it's somebody who's, you know, picking up 10-year-olds and holding them for ransom. That's not the idea. It's someone who takes people who are free, binds them to be slaves, and then they're paid for it. And so this type of slavery is a very wicked thing indeed. In fact, it's listed with all these sins. Yeah, oh, and Bob's got something. I was researching this one time and uh, looking up the Greek and looking up, you know, what slavery was. And one of the sources I found was pointing out that in the Roman society, there were some slaves in wealthy households who were way better off 
and they had higher status than other people who were not slaves. So you could actually have high status in yeah. Roman society as a slave because you were serving someone very uh, prominent or wealthy or what have you, and yeah. you had a better job than some people that were just uh, self-employed. That's a great – in fact, we see that in Hebrew slavery as well. In fact, they could own uh, property. They would have benefits and social status that didn't go away in the synagogues and in the, the gatherings of God's people. So, yeah, the, if you were a slave to somebody wealthy, it may be very beneficial. You, the last thing you'd want to do is leave because yeah. <laughs> you'd be – yeah, you'd be destitute. Yeah. So, Keith. in essence, this, this term is people who are stealing the freedom of others. Exactly. Of, so, it's, it's more of a theft concept. Yeah, that's, well, that's a, that's a good point. But the idea there, too, is this person, it's not that they need protection by selling themselves to their master. It's they're fine and someone is taking their liberties away. So my, my point being here is that God sees nuances in slavery. And what I want you to see is that on the one hand, God doesn't say all slavery is evil. But on the other hand, some forms are evil. Do you see what I'm saying? And so... Here's the point, friends. In America today, if you're out and about witnessing and people come to you and they say, well, God doesn't outlaw slavery, um, and therefore we must have an immoral God who wrote the Old and the New Testament, what you have to do is caution them and say, well, wait a minute. You're confusing, first of all, what slavery is today with what it was in the ancient Near East. And explain to them, if God had outlawed slavery in the ancient Near East, many people would have been destitute with no means to provide for themselves. Is that a loving thing? Um, so anyway, you know what? We've got a couple questions here. Bert's got one, and then we got one back there as well. I was just going to mention, uh, you're pointing out how slavery can be in different forms. Yeah. And um, we had, in early American history, there was a form of slavery, I, I would call it that, where they were called indentured servants, mm. where they would sell uh, some years of their life as a... Uh, hired hand mm-hmm. for a ride over to the new world. Okay. So yeah, we've sure. had a similar deal. Yeah. Just wanted to mention. Yeah, yeah. Was Yeah, Bert, um, well, do you remember, was it for a period of time that engendered? Seven years. So, oh, was it seven years? I wonder if that was based on the Levitical principle. It's interesting. It probably was because Christian background, you know. So anyway, yeah. Um, two things. Indentured servants also generally would do it to learn a trade where they'd indenture themselves for seven years and then become a silversmith or something. Yeah, so it would be very beneficial. Yep, and then the thing with um, the southern slavery here in America, that falls under the kidnappers because they went to Africa, rounded people up, and brought them here, so that falls under the banned category. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, because think about the slave trade from Africa to the United States. People against their will were taken on slave ships. That's a great application. I didn't think of that. Yeah, of course. Right, very good. Yeah, Mike. Um, I kind of see this a little differently. I, I don't see it as a, a treatise on a type of slavery. I see it as a attitude for one found in slavery. And say, say, I'm sorry, say that again. An, a, an attitude for one found in slavery. One found in slavery. Yeah, that's you, you find yourself. Yeah. And I think it goes along with um, you know Romans 13, where there's different uh, social arrangements and different cultures. And uh, authorities are established and that we're to, uh, you know, respect those authorities because, uh, you know, slavery has had uh, many, you know, terrible episodes in, in history. Mm-hmm. 
but there's also been other uh, types of episodes, uh, you know, where, where people are killed or people are uh, starved to death. And um, yeah. I think what this is talking about is more of how, how we respond to authority and h- how we are sh- should be content in the, uh, you know, station that we find ourselves in life. Yeah, Mike, let me just stop you right there, if you, if you don't mind. I, I agree with you. I, th- I don't think it's either or, though. I think it's both and. In other words, I think you're right. God is addressing slaves. In fact, we're going to read that in 1 Corinthians 7, that people should be content and remain as they were at conversion. So there's definitely an element there. But the other thing is, according to 1 Timothy 1, 9 through 10 here, um, don't think that you and I can go out and grab a slave, uh, make a free man a slave, and think that that God will somehow tolerate it and not call it evil. It's clear. So it's not either or. I think it's both and. Do you see what I'm saying? So I just want to be very precise with what the Word of God is saying because it's obviously in the list here, and I've done some research, and it is slave dealer. That is the best translation there. But I, I agree, that element is there where it's our attitude. If I'm a believer and a slave, I'm far better off than a free man who doesn't know Christ because, in fact, he's a slave to sin. And uh, he ultimately isn't a free man. So I think, and we're going to come to that element here. But now, let me just turn, uh, if you will, or if I may, to how God mitigated some of the things that happened in slavery. First of all, God pr- provided protections for the slaves. Let me kind of go through what he demanded. Oh, by the way, before I do that, I had another passage. Um, I don't know if it was on this slide. No, I think it's coming on this slide. Never mind. You'll, you'll come to it. It's Revelation 18, 13, and it's going to talk about this fairness issue. So here's one of the protections. Hebrews treated as hired men. They must be released on the Sabbath year. We already talked about that. Or the year of Jubilee, whichever came first. I already alluded to that, but who had the Exodus 21, 1 through 6? Yeah, Keith. Now, these are the ordinances which you are to set before them. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years, but on the seventh he shall go out as a free man without payment. If he comes alone, he shall go out alone. If he is a husband of a wife, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall belong to her master, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out as a free man. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an owl, and he shall serve him permanently. Wow. Getting your ear pierced by an owl, that doesn't sound very good, does it? But you know, isn't it interesting, though, in verse 5, where it says, but if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my... You know, there's evidence right there that not all slaves are treated poorly. In fact, it's very beneficial that many of these slaves would be with a certain family. And it's what Bob was alluding to, that it was a very beneficial thing to many people. So again, if God had outright said all slavery is banned, it would have been very devastating to many thousands of people. So, okay, anyway, with that, you can see the protections given to the Hebrews. And also, I'm not going to get into the Leviticus 25, 39, because we've also talked about that. The other thing, slaves could acquire possessions and use income to redeem themselves. And I don't think I'm going to have us look up that passage, because we've already kind of talked about that. Slaves could not be killed or severely beaten. That's an important thing. God considered slaves still human although he did consider them property interestingly enough um, so remember god again doesn't see things as we do but the important thing is there's they're slaves they're property and so he doesn't outlaw slavery but yet there's still people who are made in the image of god and therefore you can't abuse them outright and then let's see master should treat slaves well in fact i want to read a passage here out of philemon christians slaves 
our, as Christian slaves, our brothers and equals. Who has uh, Philemon? Did I give that out? One fifteen through sixteen. Yeah. So these are how we should regard. If we were a master in the ancient Near East, how should we regard our brother? And if you remember the book of Philemon, Philemon was a slave owner. Onesimus was his um, his slave, and his name literally means useful one. In fact, that was a common name for a slave. Well, he escapes, becomes a Christian under Paul's preaching. Now, Philemon is Paul's writing to Philemon, saying that Onesimus has now become very useful to him and that he is to be granted freedom for the, uh, the love of, uh, for, the, for the sake of love because Philemon should love his brother now, Onesimus. Yeah, go ahead and read that passage. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Yeah, so now status doesn't matter in the church because we're all brothers and sisters, and that is a beautiful thing. So here, Paul is pleading. And remember, Paul doesn't command him to do it. He says he has the authority to command him to release Onesimus, but he appeals to his conscience, and he appeals to him as a brother and asks him to do so and expects him to do so. And I, I think he did. Yeah, Larry's got something. Is this one of those arguments where you can kind of do the comparison of ontological versus economical? What I mean by ontological is they're who, who they are in terms of persons and brothers in Christ and their economical and their functions and what they do as a slave. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, in other words, uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but are you saying, you know, financially it's one thing. That's a different category than being a brother or sister in Christ. If I was your slave, at the end of the day, if we're both believers, in that sense we're brothers, but in the economic sense, I owe you good service, right? And I agree with you. However, it's interesting, Paul does ask Onesimus, or ask Philemon to release Onesimus. Now, does he ask him because Onesimus is just particularly useful to Paul? That could be. Or does he ask that of every single uh, slave owner? I think it's probably because Onesimus was particularly useful, as you're pointing out, to, um, to Philemon. Yeah, yeah. because we don't see a universal principle where Christian slave owners have to release their slaves. Yeah, yep. Is that, is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah, yep. Let me move on to the next one here. There's another passage I want to get into. Slaves, we see that we have freedom in Christ. So if you're a slave, what matters is your freedom in Christ. It doesn't matter, as Larry is saying, your financial arrangement. What ultimately matters is that you're not a slave to sin, that you are, in fact, saved. So listen in 1 Corinthians 7, 21 through 22. Paul says, remain as you are. However, he says, if you can get your freedom, um, do so. And who had that passage? Was it back there? I'm just referring to Genesis 24, 2, with Abraham and his slaves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all he owned. Yeah, yeah, right there. That shows you the the position (laughs) and the benefit of being a slave there. The last thing you'd want to do is leave that. Then what would you have? One sickly piece of cattle and you'd be destitute in the desert. And he entrusted him... To go and find a wife for yeah. his son Isaac, and then when he's when his servant got there to the land, he prayed to the God of Abraham for help to find it. So he was very fully aware of the true God. Right. So here he comes under a covenant relationship with Yahweh. He's a believer, and he ends up being saved. How? What a great benefit is that! You know, wow. 
Wow, really good catch. Thank you. Now, who had the 1 Corinthians 7 passage? Was that? Oh, Patrick. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freedman. Similarly, he who was a freedman when he was called is Christ's slaves. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Yeah. Now think about that. Remember we, last week we talked about how institutions here on earth point to a greater reality? And think about um, in Ephesians 5, we see that a man and his wife in some ways picture the church that is Christ in the church. And we see here that slaves and masters somehow pictures the institution of us being slaves to our master, Christ. We know that Moses made the tabernacle after the pattern that was shown to him on the mount in Exodus 25:40. So isn't it interesting to think that a lot of these institutions that you and I think are evil and wicked, and, and certainly some of them perhaps are, but what if God allows them to show this picture of what it's really like between him and his people, between him and the world? And so we have this analogical usage, if you, if you will, of these institutions whereby God is using all things for his glory, pointing to a greater reality. We know what it's like to have a master because we see them here on earth. A member of the centurion says, I'm also a man under orders. He says, I hear the word and I go. And Jesus marveled. He says, I've never seen such faith. Okay. So the point being, friends, is before we just outright condemn slavery, realize that, again, slavery in the ancient Near East was different than we have in America. American slavery was founded on the notion of going to take people who were free men and bringing them against their will, which is immoral. And it was based on their being different in merely their appearance. Okay. However, ancient Near East slavery was often beneficial to the slave himself. So, again, when people come up to you and they say, the Bible is immoral because God never condemns slavery, we have to be careful, I think, to point out these distinctions and say, not so fast. Had God just outright said that slavery is immoral, then we had a lot of people destitute, and it would have been no good at all. Okay, now we see that slaves serve as unto the Lord. Colossians 3, 23 through 25 Paul continues, this is, Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Notice this term, receive reward. I think it has to do ultimately with a reward that one would receive at the Bema judgment. This is the judgment seat of Christ. And so this here Paul is talking about believers and he's talking about whether they receive reward or whether they receive the consequences of what they do wrong. And what's interesting is this judgment, you'll see we're going to read a passage in 1 Corinthians 3, but this passage in 2 Corinthians 5:10 I think alludes to this Bema judgment, this judgment seat of Christ whereby What's at stake isn't whether one goes to hell, but rather what time of what type of um, accommodation you will receive from the Lord. Are you with me? So let me read this passage to you in Second Corinthians 5:10, and I think this is the type of reward that Paul is alluding to in Colossians 3. It says, "For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad." Now, did I, I handed out the 1 Corinthians 3.10 through 15. Yeah, you had that one, Pat? 
Now, what I want you to do is I want you to think about here it says that they'll be given recompense according to what they have done, whether good or bad. Now, sometimes in the scriptures we see that whether one does good or bad is in reference to if you do good works, you're labeled among the elect. That means you've been saved. You've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, your deeds are no longer regarded as filthy rags. And they're, they're really genuinely considered good works. Remember Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. In verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works that, we, that have been prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So ultimately our salvation is for these good works. So in one sense, you can look at anybody who does good works. The only reason they're regarded as good works is because God did them through us and for us. Are you with me? And therefore, only the elect is capable of doing works that are considered good by God. Okay? And then on the other hand, the bad deeds are always those of the reprobate because they can never do anything pleasing to God. However, in this context, I think what's being referred to is the Bema Seed judgment where the issue again isn't whether one has salvation or not. It's what kind of... Because that's been settled through faith in Christ. What's at stake is how one will enjoy the kingdom. Are you with me? And just to give some credence to that view, who had the 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15 passage? Anybody? No? Oh, yeah, Pat. That's right. I forgot already. <laughs> According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder... I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Yeah, so notice in verse 15 there, if you're building upon this foundation, if all of it's burned, you suffer loss, but yet you're saved. So the salvation is in at stake. What's at stake is one's reward. However, remember in the context here, Paul, he is the one who founded the church. And what was the foundation? It was the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was Jesus Christ who was the foundation. So he lays that foundation, and now he's rejecting or rebuking those who are claiming that they need wisdom, Sophia, within the Corinthian congregation. And he's claiming that, yes, I, Paul, laid a foundation, and it's Christ. Now you are building upon that foundation and you must not build on that foundation any other thing than what is befitting, in other words, what conforms to the gospel of Christ. And so therefore, Paul ends up saying the foundation is Christ. That's the idea. So the idea here is if you and I in our Christian walk build upon that foundation through things that accord with what Christ would have us do, first and foremost the gospel and also good works to our brothers and sisters, that is according to the foundation. These people were to build upon the foundation, which is Christ. If you and I do things that are outside of that foundation, they really are of no earthly or heavenly good. They will be burned up before this bamacy. 
2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we, and I put the circle up, must, that is day, remember the divine necessity? This is the divine necessity that we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And by the way, that term appear, that is actually a passive. So it's the divine passive that God is going to have us appear. So it's not something you and I do. God does it. And it's not only that you and I appear, but our works as well. Isn't that rather frightening? Our works will appear just as they are. And God does that. It's a divine passive. So not only you and I, but also the works are implied. And so we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Oh, I, did think, I think I did read that, but I didn't put up my circles. That's what I didn't do. Okay, now let me just show you where this Bema seed comes, I think. And it comes before the millennial kingdom. So think of this. You have the Bema judgment. Then you have a thousand-year millennial kingdom. Then you're going to have this white throne judgment. And I think the, this is kind of the, if you read in the book of Revelation, it would fit somewhere around Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6. It's also, I think, alluded to in maybe perhaps Matthew 25. I can't be sure. For sure it's being alluded to here that we just read in 2 Corinthians 5, 10. Um, but here's what I want you to see on my little schematic here is that in the Bema Sea judgment, there's no condemnation, only commendation. Okay, why? Because the issue of salvation has already been settled. Um, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, Romans 8, 30, for those whom he predestined, he called. For those whom he called, he justified. For them he justified, he also then glorified. Uh, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. So the point is, friends, if you've been saved, you're saved. There's no condemnation upon you. But that said, not everyone is going to enjoy the millennial kingdom and perhaps the new heavens new earth and new jerusalem equally now under the white throne judgment it's what's at stake here is salvation there is no reward okay there's no chance for reward the only thing that's at play is how bad will your punishment be so there's no commendation only condemnation that's how i would look at it so again the bema seed judgment is the one that we were just looking at in second corinthians 5 10 okay and oh bob's got something I was looking at that the other day, and yeah. with this one question, I think there's some things we don't know. Yeah. But there are ordinary people living during the millennium that enter in in their mortal bodies. Yeah. Okay, and they live many, many years, yeah. and they have descendants. Yeah. And then there's a rebellion at the end. Yeah. But don't you think that there are some people who would be living during the millennium that actually have faith in Christ? Yeah, absolutely. And somehow their yeah, so reward would have to happen. Their reward would have to happen too as well. So yeah, where does that beam is? In other words, is it the, at the end of the millennium? Yeah, perhaps. Well, I don't know. I think there's I some know. things we don't know. We don't know. Right. But maybe at the great white throne, there are some more people rewarded there. Sure, yeah. That's a great point. Yeah, in other words, at the end of the millennial kingdom, perhaps that's, I don't know. Yeah, we don't yeah, know. Yeah, there, there's the people that would still have to be judged to yeah. during the millennium. Yeah, and that's some a good of them argument. Are evil and some, yeah, I would assume some people are faithful to Christ during the millennium. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, in fact, that's one of the roles of Israel. They become finally the priesthood to the nations that they never were during this lifetime. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Keith. I think maybe it goes on what we're talking about here, but I think the whole concept of slavery, what we have a hard time with, yeah. is that we believe we have a right to freedom. And. When you look in Scripture, God doesn't give us that right, at that, especially when it comes to civil government. You look at uh, Romans 13, you know, 12 and talks about obey the authorities, be subject to the authorities, 
And the concept that God has is that there is a government and a civil government and we're commanded to obey. And ultimately, as Christians, we're commanded to be ready to go to prison, to lose our freedom, to give up our freedom utterly on behalf of the gospel. When it says pay our taxes and give to Caesar what's Caesar's, God's giving us an obligation to the government and to as to be a slave. If the government said you're going to pay 100%, would the Christians be willing to? Yeah. And we struggle as Christians to come under God's commands to obey and to give up our freedom because we have a contradiction on our pagan side on, a, on, a, on a looking at government that I have a right to freedom, which is not, which is just isn't there. Right. Yeah. Let me just talk about that a minute. It's interesting. According to our Constitution we have a right to freedom. But that's a legal document, not necessarily a, a, a biblical, and it's, of course, not a biblical one. It's exactly. It's for Americans. It's interesting, in Romans 13, the government authority does not bear the sword in vain, meaning they can use it. And when we read that passage carefully, we're, in, we're talking about Romans 13, 1 through 7, the governing authority, that power is vested in them by God. In fact, there is no authority except that which comes from God, so you're absolutely right. If you and I are going to disobey the governing authority, by de facto we're, we're disobeying God's um, will, his moral will. Now, that said, there's, I think, one caveat that we can see in Scripture, and this doesn't apply to what you've mentioned, but remember, uh, we see the principle that any time God, I'm sorry, government commands us to do something that God uh, forbids or the government forbids us to do something that God commands, then we're to obey God rather than men. But that certainly would not fall in the category that Keith is referring to. So, yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, so let's let's make a careful distinction between what's American, what's red, white, blue, apple pie, John Wayne, baseball, um, everything, I mean, which I'm all for, right? But, okay, so here's how I look at it. I would, I'd say let's not claim our freedom is a biblical right, but I can claim it's my American legal right. Are you with me? That's how I would... Yeah. So, okay. Who is somebody else? Was oh yeah. Yeah. And this may be a little bit off of off of topic, but backing up just a little bit in terms of recompense for works. Yeah. What? I, this is troubling to me. Uh, always has been, and I wonder if you can expand on it a little bit. What greater joy is there than being in the presence of the Lord? Oh, I, um, yeah, you know, I don't know as far as, like, what is our reward? I know they talk about there's crowns, but I don't know what it is either. We don't really have a lot of information on what the reward is. And certainly that is um, that is a great reward in and of itself. That is our primary reward. But I don't know. I don't know what the reward is. All we can, What we can affirm is that there will be reward. And we can trust that because we know the God who's proclaimed that promise, it's going to be probably something very spectacular. But I, I just don't know. If it's yeah. based if it's based on my works, I'm afraid they're going to be tears. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, remember, God is doing through you and for you what you couldn't do for yourself. So yeah, it, we don't get to even boast in our works. Yeah. So okay, with that, let me keep. Um, how are we doing on time? Let me keep moving along here. Masters, Paul says, you're slaves too, and you're slaves to God. So look how you treat your slaves, or make sure you treat them well. Colossians four one. Paul writes, Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. The same thing is said in Ephesians 6, 9 as well. 
where Paul says, And masters do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no partiality with him. And again, I think this plays into the idea that, yes, we know something what it's like to have a master in heaven because we've seen masters here on earth. Think about this in the English language. We believe as evangelicals in something called the analogical use of language. What does that mean? That means God condescends to speak to us in ways that we would understand. In other words, God is all-powerful. He's omnipotent. And so you and I have never seen all power. But we know something of what power is, don't we? Why? Because we've seen it here on earth. We know a V8, a big 350-cube V8 is more powerful than a uh, Toyota Prius's engine, right? We know something of the difference between different forms of power, right? An F-15 has more power than my little Cessna 172 that I used to flight instruct in, and that used to bother me, actually, <laughs> because I would always like want to climb out and go straight up. And Anyway, but the point is we know something of what it is to have power, right? So we don't know what it's like to have all power, but we know something of power. And so the point is, friends, we don't know what it's like completely to be in the presence of our master, But in some respect, the masters here on earth are to act as a foreshadowing of the ultimate master that we will one day face. And so that's why, again, um, marriage, a man is supposed to love his wife as Christ loves the church. And when we distort the marriage, in other words, there's multiple partners, whatever the case may be, there's infidelity, we're distorting the picture of Christ and his church. Okay, And so in a sense, that's what sin does. It, It distorts the image that we're supposed to be bearing as image bearers of God and bringing him glory. So, yeah, we had another thought back there. Um, I was trying to make the distinction between what a hired hand is and a slave. Um, my understanding, a hired hand went home to their own home, correct? They didn't live on the property? Yeah. And they weren't, I have to be weren't honest fed? With you, yeah. So basically a slave had room and board instead of pay? I, I would assume so. To be honest with you, I didn't do a lot of research into that. If there's, um, if I can make a distinction in the language, um, I'd, I'd be cautious just because of my ignorance. I, I wouldn't want to tell you one way or the other if there's a... I, I would assume there's that distinction, but I, I couldn't tell you for sure. So, yeah. Yep. So, okay, let's keep moving. Anybody else before we move on? Let me move on to the next one here, the devotion to prayer that Paul exhorts us to. Colossians 4, 2 through 4, says, Devote yourselves to prayer keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Um, Notice the term here, devote. It's an imperative, and it means to persist with intense effort. And so you and I, I think it says this in Ephesians 3.18 as well, that you and I are to be continuously devoted to prayer without ceasing. Okay, That's one of the great joys of being a believer, that we have now access to the throne of grace. And also notice this term, keeping. It's interesting because this is in the present tense, and it's actually it's keeping alert. It actually comes from a term that we see elsewhere in eschatological passages. It's a participle. Um, gray garuntes, and it literally means to be constantly ready. So the idea that it's in the present tense means we're supposed to be in, in, constantly in the process of being ready. Why? Because of the Lord's kingdom will break out, and we don't know when that will be. Are you with me? So it's that sort of idea. We see it in First Thessalonians 5, 6, Matthew 24, 42, 
Now, some people have said, well, wait a minute, the constantly being alert here has to do only with prayer. It has nothing to do with the Lord's return in this context. However, uh, when we get down to verse 5, verse 5 actually does talk about kairos, okay? And why is that important? Because kairos is the type of time where it's the long-awaited epoch. It's the appointed time that God is going to do something, particularly uh, in this context, would be eschatological. He is going to bring salvation and judgment upon his enemies. So remember, there's two types of time. There's chronos. Um, 10 o'clock comes after 9.59, right? That's chronos, chronological time. And then there's kairos, the appointed time, the epoch of God. It's about to break forth, okay? Kairos is mentioned in verse 5. So the point being is that what I think Paul is alluding to here is that you and I are to be devoted to prayer, constantly alert because we're aware that this kairos is about to break forth and we know the time is short. We don't know when. That's the point, okay? Okay, and then notice here that we have the door for the word and the mystery of Christ. Remember that the word is what reveals the mystery of Christ. You remember back in Colossians 1.26... In fact, did I give Colossians 1.26? Oh, yeah, Craig. I'll have him read that. But remember what we talked about is this idea, before you read it, remember the emerging church is saying that everything is mystery because we see references to mystery in the New Testament, mysterion. But remember the biblical concept of the mystery is that which was formerly concealed. And remember, concealed doesn't mean it didn't exist. It was just concealed. It existed, is now revealed. So the point is, is the Old Testament is pregnant with the Messianic gospel. In fact, so much so, according to 2 Timothy 3, how is it that Timothy came to saving faith? Well, through the Old Testament scriptures, okay? So anyway, with that, let me have Craig read this, and I'll point out a few other items. So that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, that is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations but has now been manifested to his saints. Yeah, so here's the idea of the mystery was hidden in Christ. Remember when we were talking in Colossians 1.26, we talked about the idea that Christ was the storehouse of this mystery. And so if you know Christ, you're tapping in there to the mystery of how God's salvific and redemption, uh, plan of redemption would unfold. Okay, so if you, and how do we know this mystery? How do we know this Christ where all the storehouse of mysteries are revealed uh, about God's redemption for us? Well, we know it through the word. So notice it's not a mystical experience. Yeah, Bob. What's amazing is how often we find this same prayer request in the New Testament. Mm. And kind of a, amazing in a sense that why does Paul keep asking for prayer that he might be bold in the gospel and that he might have you know, clarity. Yeah. He asked for the same prayer request in Ephesians chapter 6. Yep. And then we see the apostles themselves in Acts when they were told they couldn't preach Christ. They went in and had a prayer meeting and they prayed that God would grant them boldness oh, to preach yeah. Christ. Yeah. And so I think the implication of this yeah. is that there's always a temptation and forces that are coming against the proclamation of the gospel, that even the apostle himself realized that he needed prayer because it would be easy for him to make his life a lot easier. But look what happened to him because he kept preaching Christ. Yeah, He was was stoned and beaten beaten, and imprisoned and and so on. And there's just the the attack of Satan 
which is talked about in Ephesians 6 in the armor of God, is always against the gospel. Yeah. And so I'd say that's, we need to pray for one another yes. that, we, that we would be bold in the gospel because that's the area of warfare that Satan is coming against. Yeah, isn't it interesting what Paul is longing for here is an opportunity to proclaim the gospel and be about the word. Think about it. you and I are being told by the postmodern generation that what we need is an experience and we need to um, maybe walk a labyrinth or do some sort of uh, procedure to come in contact with this mystery. But what Paul is alluding to here is that he wants to preach the word of God. Why? Because that's what converts the soul. And so this is talking about the devotion of prayer, but notice the end game is the, the proclamation of the word. Uh, let me move on here. We're almost out of time. We're called to be salt and light, and uh, that's Paul's point here in Colossians 4, 5 through 6, where he says, Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. You see that term opportunity there? That is actually kairos. That is the appointed time. And again, that is usually used because now, friends, we're living in the age where the next thing on God's redemptive calendar is the breaking forth of his kingdom. Kairos would be indicating that that's the opportunity. We only have an opportunity to preach the gospel and be salt and light on this earth until he comes. And so we're to be busy about that. And then F.F. Bruce makes a comment about each person. I thought it was interesting. He said in his commentary, he says, Moreover, the conversion of Christians must not only be opportune as regards the time, that again is kairos, but he says it must also be appropriate as regards the person. This, I think, entails, friends, not only are we accurate with the gospel to each person, but also we are a witness to them in the way we live our lives. And in fact, that's alluded to in 1 Peter 3.15. So, I think that's what F.F. Bruce is talking about. We regard people that we're witnessing to as individuals, and we don't just treat them as a cookie-cutter project. Uh, These are people that are precious in God's sight, but yet we're accurate, forthright with the gospel, and, in fact, we live out our lives so that there's no... uh, Can you read 1 Peter 3.15? Do you have your... Oh, you got your computer. I was wondering if you had a Bible. You got your computer, though. (laughs) That's good. All right. Yeah. So, Franklin... It's a Franklin, uh, that's right. But in your heart set apart, Christ is Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that is that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Yeah, with gentleness and respect. And also notice in the context there, let me just, if I can, I'm sorry, I've got a cast on my hand, kind of having a hard time getting there. Let me um, just back up here. Yeah, look at the context. Let's, in verse 13, let me just back up First uh, Peter uh, 3.13, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready. What's interesting is the point that I'm making here is it's interesting in the context, suffering is at stake. And he also talks about being zealous for what is good. And, of course, the gospel is good and our actions have to be good. So the point is in 1 Peter 3.15, it's not only the content that we're giving the answer to. In other words, it's the gospel. We're prepared to give an answer, but it's also the conduct. 
And I think that that's what's being alluded to here. It's not only the content of the gospel, but it's our conduct as well before each person. I think that's what's being derived at. So anyway, with that, let me give you a summary of this section. We're really done. The next time we're together, I might talk a little bit about how Paul ends, some of the names that are there. I might give you just a brief review, and then I thought we would start an introduction to uh, 1 Corinthians. That we're, that's what Bob and I had settled on doing, so I think we're going to delve into 1 Corinthians, if that sounds good to everybody. Uh, let me give you a summary of this section, though. Each Christian is to give thanksgiving for God's graces and deference to all in authority, whether they be husbands, parents, or masters. Paul concludes the teaching of the Colossians by commanding them to be fervent in prayer for the spread of the gospel and by exhorting them to be salt and light in a dying world. They were to do all these things while having Maranatha upon their lips, constantly expecting that the kairos, the appointed time, God would one day come and bring the kingdom. With that, I'm open to any questions or suggestions. Yeah, Casey's got one back there. I'd like to go back and talk about the slavery issue. Yeah. Um, I teach American Lit every spring, and okay. so when I get to that time where we're dealing with the abolitionist writing and the slave writings and whatnot, I've read extensively the arguments for and against slavery. Yeah. And I've read um, arguments, uh, you know, firsthand documents from slaves, former slaves, and then also from slave masters. What is interesting and creates a really weird tension, especially for historians and literary scholars, is that both the abolitionists and the pro-slavery writers are pulling scriptures yeah. uh, to support their cause. Yeah. And so I think it's very important that we understand what the Bible is saying so we can take it in context because it was very much abused. Many slaveholders would justify bringing slaves from Africa, from the Caribbean, from lots of other places um, yeah. because they thought, hey, we're a Christian nation. Yeah. They're pagans. We bring them over, and we're doing you know, God a favor and them a favor. Sure. So you can see how it was very much abused. What makes it even more complicated is that you have even um, some slaves that were writing poetry, novels, narratives, whatnot, that would talk about how if I hadn't come over from Africa as a slave, I would never have met Christ. And Phyllis Wheatley is a really popular example. So it's really interesting to read that and to see the abuse, um, but then also to see a lot of abolitionist writers um, going back to scriptures, back to the Old Testament, and taking the proper context and understanding of slavery um, and using that to counter the arguments as well. And so um, really interesting moment in history, um, tragic moment for for us as Americans. But we need to understand this so we can address it, because I know, at least in my field, um, when it comes to thinking of Christianity and slavery, um, you know, or I'm sorry, when it comes to thinking of slavery in the American context, modern scholars will point to the Christians as being the evil ones who uh, promoted this. And unfortunately, a lot was done in the name of Christ abusing the scriptures. So I appreciate you explaining this. Yeah, Casey, thanks. Yeah, and again, in that context, what's interesting is, remember in uh, Joseph in Genesis, is it 50, says, what you meant for evil, God meant it for good. What's interesting is I would declare what was done there evil. And according to 1 Timothy 1, 9, and 10, I think that that would be a kidnapper in the sense of a man-stealer. So I think that would fall within the immoral category, obviously, of slavery. What's interesting in, in God's his gracious and merciful nature, he did allow some of the slaves to become believers in Christ, and so it ended up being a net gain. However, that doesn't excuse those who were 
rounding people up in Africa and throwing them on the ship. They should have been going out there just preaching the gospel to them anyway, um, not bringing them over here and considering it a virtue to stack them in like sardines on a, a ship. So, yeah, we have to have that balance, I think. We have to be careful what the scriptures are saying. And, um, yeah, so, yep, good. I just wanted to say that they have to be careful of, you know, you were saying that some of these Christians brought slaves over and they were bringing them over for God's purpose, they said, or and they were bringing them over for the slaves' purpose to put them under God. But let's not forget that they probably forgot they were bringing them over for themselves, yeah. that they could benefit, and that's, that's right. they were, weren't thinking about. Yeah. They, get, they, they want to use the other argument, but they, they weren't using that argument on themselves that, hey, we, we made out on this too, you know. Exactly, and, and isn't that interesting? We can't hide our motivations from God. I mean, they weren't packed into slave ships like sardines because they wanted to preach the gospel to them. It was for, it was for slave purposes, exactly. So God knows the truth on that. And, yeah, I would say it, it would definitely fit in with the First Timothy 1.10 that there were people, yeah, man-stealers, yeah. So, well, with that, I think we're out of time. Uh, go greet one another and eat some goodies. <laughs> <laughs>